good morning. What a beautiful day. And if you join us online, thank you for joining us. We're glad you're tuning in with us. Um, so we're going through the letters of the New Testament. We call them epistles. And um, for those of you that may be here, you know the Bible very well. You know what I'm talking about. This is very, very basic for you. For some of you, though, uh, this is new to you. You're new to understanding the Bible, and uh, you don't know it. And some of us are between that, right? And so we call these letters epistles. Um, and so if you know anything about the Bible, the Bible is, has 66 books. Um, there's uh, the Old Testament, which is about two-thirds of the Bible, and then one-third is the New Testament. The Old Testament is about one, uh, two-thirds, one-third. And then uh, in the New Testament, you have the Gospels, which are historical narrative with the book of Acts. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hold the horse while I get on. That's how you remember it, okay? And then the book of Acts comes after Matthew, and then we, we, we jump into the letters, the epistles. And that's what we're going through in this series. We're taking one week um, on each letter. So we talked about Romans. We went through 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Those are all letters of Paul. Paul wrote a lot of these letters, epistles. Um, then we come to uh, General Electric Power Company. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, that's just kind of an easy way to remember the next four books that come after Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company. So it's, a, it's an easy way to remember that. So with all of that said, you should know kind of whereabouts in the Bible. You're two-thirds of the Old Testament. You're in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts. And you come to Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then last week we talked about Galatians. This week we're going to talk about Ephesians. And so that's kind of where we're going to go. But I want to ask you a question today. As you think about, you know, you have those, if you're kind of a healthy, generally a healthy person, you have those, every year you have a scheduled doctor's appointment. And I don't know about you, but there are times where I go, I don't know if I want to really go to this thing, you know, and you're going to take your height and you check your weight and your blood pressure and and you, you kind of get to a place, I don't know, maybe, you're, maybe I'm the only one like this, but I'm going, I'm a little nervous, and I don't really enjoy it. It's not like I go, I get to go to the doctor today, you know? Now, why is that? I was thinking about why is that that I don't like it? Because he's always going to find something wrong, right? Eh, I don't know if I like the weight. You know, you could drop a few pounds. That would be helpful. Uh, I don't know what your blood pressure, you know what? Uh, you know, what are you eating, you know, and, and, and it's like they're, t they kind of, and again, this is important, they tell you what you don't want to hear, right? Lose a few pounds, you know, get a little exercise, you know, eat a little better, you know, and, you know, change your diet, and, 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 and you, and, and then you're hoping they don't come up with, uh-oh, you know, it's like, you don't want that, and, but here's the thing. Those are the things you have to hear because if you don't know if there's something, because it seems like they always are telling you what's wrong with you. Like they don't go in and say, you look great, see you next year. You know, it's like, no, there's always something. They're, they're always going to find something. But here's the thing. 
Unless they find something, they can't fix it. Um, and it's really important sometimes. So in the, in the passage we're going to look at today, Paul's going to show us something about us that we don't want to see, but we have to see it. Because unless we see it, we can't get fixed. We can't find the cure, okay? So that's kind of where we're going to go today. But let me give you just a, a quick overview for the book of Ephesians. We said that the book of, many of these letters are tied to the book of Acts because the events of Acts, which are historical literature um, and narrative, they basically document a number of Paul's journeys and where he writes some of these letters. So we, we get information about that. So Paul probably spent more time in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a region, okay? And there were churches, house churches in the region of Ephesus. So this letter would have been passed to these different churches. And uh, so he writes to the church at Ephesus. But it wasn't one big church. It was probably a smattering of house churches that gathered. And uh, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19 where Paul visited. And he spent more time in the region of Ephesus than any other region. He spent over three years there which was a lot of time. So, the other thing we see about Ephesians is Paul is writing to a really kind of a Gentile audience. Now, we don't even think about that today. We don't think of the difference between Jew and Gentile. We just think we're the church, right? But then, that was a big deal because you had the Jews with their, their, their Ten Commandments and their dietary laws and all their traditions and then you had the Gentiles that were coming out of very different views. They had multiple views and God and goddesses and Greeks and all of that different thing. So they come together as the church, and you know, there's a lot of discussion about what are we the Jews, what are we going to do with the Gentiles, and how do we behave? And it was really a big mixing pot. And so there were a lot of issues. So Paul is talking a lot. You hear his voice speaking to the Gentile audience here in this letter. Now, one of the things we, we, said, uh, we said about the letters is many times what Paul does is he's writing to correct problems. First Corinthians is very clear in First Corinthians that there's this dialogue going back and forth and there's issues in the church of Corinth. Uh, Galatians was the same thing. Paul doesn't even greet them. He gets right after it. He says, who has bewitched you? You're following a different gospel. We don't see any of that in Ephesians. None of that. Paul basically doesn't even address that. So it seems as though Ephesians starts out as a very healthy church. And so uh, they started out really well. But as you read through the New Testament, if you come to the book of Revelation, you come to Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses, there's these letters that are written to the churches. And one of the churches that John writes to, this is the Apostle John, one of the churches he writes to is to the church of Ephesus. And he says something to the church. This is what he says. He says, you have left your first love. You have left your first love. I wonder, is it possible that we as a church, we as individuals, have left our first love? We start out really well, but we've left We've lost that passion. We've lost the fire. And we need to renew it. And so Paul is, uh, is in his letter is 
they're doing well. But then later on in John's letter that came a number of years later, he says, you lost your first love. The other thing, too, is Paul wrote this letter. We call this letter a prison epistle. And why do we do that? Because he's in prison, and he wrote it while he was in prison. All right, he's in a Roman cell, and he's writing these letters. Probably chained to a guard, and he's writing these letters. Um, This is one of four prison epistles. You have Ephesians, you have Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four letters Paul wrote from prison while he was captive in Rome. Let me give you an outline of, of Ephesians. So basically, Ephesians is typical of these uh, letters that Paul writes. In a lot of these letters, he takes the first half of the letter and he, he tells us what we should believe. In the second half, he tells us, okay, now that you know this, this is what you should do. This is how it should change how you be- behave, right? So what you believe and how you behave, that's kind of how he breaks it down. So if you go through chapters 1 through 3, Paul basically says, this is what you should believe. There's a lot of rich theology there. But then you come to chapters 4 through 6, and he's basically applying what we've we've learned in chapters 1 through 3, and he says, this is how you should behave. So it's very interesting. As you go through the, the whole book, in the first three chapters, you see a lot of, okay, I'm going to get do an English lesson here, the indicative mood. The indicative mood in English just states facts. The boy hit the ball, you know, it's just stating things. That's what Paul does in the f- chapters 1 through 3. It's all indicative. You come to chapters 4 through 6, and there's a lot of imperatives. Now, what does the imperative mood do? It's commanding. It's saying, do this, do this, do this, Right? And so that's kind of where uh, Paul basically says, now that you know this, chapters 1 through 3, this is what you should do, chapters 4 through 6. All right? So that's kind of a basic overview of the book. The passage we're going to look at is found in Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. Now, another thing that Paul does, and he does this in Ephesians, this is very interesting. In chapter 1, he has a verse, or he has a, a sentence that goes probably 14 or more verses. I mean, in Greek, it's just one big sentence. (laughs) If you wrote it in your English class, the teacher would say, uh, you need to break this up. And so in our English translations, they bring it up, they break it up and they add kind of verbs in there. But uh, it's one sentence and he does the same thing here. And I'll show you, I'll show you where that is. Let me start reading a verse one of, of chapter two of Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. You see that phrase, made us alive? That's the verb. Since I started, that was the first verb that we come to. So the the essence of the whole sentence is this. You were dead in trespasses, but God, because of his great mercy, made us alive. That's the sentence. 
But all the rest is just, you know, you know phrases, right? Um, but God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in trespasses, it is, grace, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, these next three verses, actually the next two verses, absolutely wrecked me a number of years ago. <laughs> because I was raised in a tradition that said, do this, follow the rules, follow the regulations, do this, you know, you know follow the traditions and the, and the regulations and all that. And hopefully one day God will accept you. And then somebody showed me this verse. And I realized that this resume that I was making to show God one day wasn't worth much. I mean, it, it totally wrecked me because I thought, well, let me read it to you. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not from yourselves. It is a gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. And I thought, I thought I was doing it, saving myself. And I didn't realize that I needed a savior, that I couldn't save myself, that I couldn't be good enough. That it didn't matter whether I went to church or I believed in God or followed the rules and regulations or had an incredible sacri uh, 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 um, resume that, that I might be better than 50% of people if God have created on a curb. I realized that I, I was boasting on my works and it wrecked me. I said, well, what do I do now? But then he ends it with this, for we are God's handiwork. Some translations say masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. All right, so there's three just critical truths that we want to look at uh, this morning. Uh, the first one is that we have new life. Paul says we have new life. But he starts out with the bad news, right? He says you were dead in sins, <laughs> uh, but now you've been raised to life. And basically, Paul is saying uh, that all human beings naturally live under the denial of the depth of their own sin. Um, and here's the thing, if you don't have a correct doctrine of sin, you will never have a cor correct doctrine of salvation. Because until you see how lost you are, you will never see your need for a savior, right? If you think you're good enough, I remember sharing all this stuff. I go to church, I believe in God, I follow, you know, I do this, I do that. And the person that was asking me the question, he said, well, if you were to die today, would you go to be with God in heaven? I said, I hope so. And he said, well, if Jesus were at the gate of heaven, what would you say? And I said, well, I go to church. I believe in God. I, I go to, you know, the confession. I, I do communion. I, I, I do all this. And he says, where does Jesus fit? And I go, I don't know. Somewhere. Paul's not saying you're sick with sin. He's saying you're dead in sin. You're dead. Um, we are dead men walking. And it's hard to be rescued if you don't know you're in trouble. Have you ever been in a situation where 
Maybe you're driving or you're swimming or doing something, and it's normal. It's nothing. And then all of a sudden, things get really bad, awfully quick. And you go, "Uh uh-oh. And you keep saying, oh, it's not so bad, it's not so bad. And you go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Basically, what Paul is trying to get you to say is, don't think you're okay, you're in trouble, you're dead in sin. That's his point. Going to the doctor, sometimes the doctor says, "Uh uh-oh, I see this, we've got to, you're in trouble. Now, the question is, are we bad, are we sinners because of our environment? Um, Some people say, well, people are evil, people are bad because they've been raised in a bad environment. They don't have a good education, they've been abused, and sometimes people will justify their behavior. They'll say, I was a victim, Um, I was abused, Um, but there's a a deeper reason for our behavior, I think. Uh, so now we're going to do a little church history, okay? So Pelagius was a, a fourth century monk. And Pelagius taught that when a child is born, they learn their bad behavior from their parents or from the, the people, the models they have before them. That bad behavior is not inborn, it's learned. They learned it. Um, he believed, essentially, that we are born with a good nature and that we sin because we learn it from our parents or the people around us or our peers, whatever. Now, let's just stop for a minute. Some of you have had children, babies, one- and two-year-olds, three-year-olds. They don't have a calendar where they're going out and socializing with a whole bunch of kids, They hang around you all the time. And all of a sudden, they have a a spirit of rebellion. And you go, where did that come from? They don't even have a brother or a sister to learn from. They learned how to say no, but they struggle with yes. They know how to disobey, but they don't know how to obey what is going on here. How is this possible? Because I never had a lesson on how to disobey me. But they have a master's degree in it, right? Have you noticed that with kids sometimes? It works that way. So the question is, is it learned or is it environment or is it inborn? So there was also a fourth century bishop Augustine, and he challenged Pelagius, and he says, he basically said that what Pelagius taught was contrary to Scripture, but also to common sense, which if you're a parent, you would see that. Augustine taught that we are born sinners, so we sin. Of course, our environment does play a role in all of that, but we are natural born sinners. And I think that's what Paul's saying here. You were dead in sin. We are born spiritually dead, and only Jesus can bring us to life. A spiritually dead person can give the appearance of a spiritual and moral life. They can become morally reformed. They can behave morally. But the question is, are, are you only morally reformed or are you spiritually reborn? Let me give you an example. In John chapter 3, there's this uh, religious man. He's uh, a teacher. He comes to Jesus at night. 
Because he's not sure yet whether he wants to be seen as allied with Jesus. He's not sure. He thinks Jesus is a good man, and he likes what Jesus teaches, but he doesn't want his peers to know, because they're against Jesus, that he has an elite, he, he wants to ask more questions. So he comes at night, secretly, and he would be seen by the community as a leader in the community, morally, religiously, a good man, a good person. He would be a one of the people would look up to him. Okay? And he comes to Jesus, and what does Jesus say to this good man who is a teacher of the law? He's a teacher, he's a rabbi. He says, You must be born again. What? See, there's a difference between being morally reformed and being spiritually reborn. Uh, it's one thing to be a good moral person and a leader in the community and a nice guy, but Jesus says, but you have to be born again. You have to have that spiritual birth. He said, by the way, he said to the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the next chapter, you need living water. So whether you're at the top or the bottom, you need a spiritual rebirth, you need living water, you need to be resurrected because you're spiritually dead. That's essentially what Jesus was saying to both the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And what Paul is saying to us today. A spiritually dead person can give the appearance of spiritual life. Here's the second thing. We have a new freedom. You were born in bondage to sin, but we have been raised to life and freedom. So the question is, what is sin? Well, sin is rebellion against God. It's a desire to do my own thing. It's the song Frank Sinatra sang, I did it my way. And it's what our culture says. Our culture says, you choose, follow your heart, do what you want to do, do what makes you happy. But sin is not only rebellion against God and wanting to be the captain of our own soul. Sin is an over-desire of good things. And we don't often look at it that way. Because uh, what we tend to do, I think, is I think we tend to make good things God things. Now, what do I mean by that? You take a good thing and you make it a... a a God-like thing, like we take work or we take a, a comfort or money or relationships or hobbies, and we say, well, that's a good thing. So work, let's take work for an example. Work is, uh, work is a good thing. It's an important thing. It, we should all be involved in working. God designed us to work, but we can make work an obsession. Why? Because it can give us satisfaction, significance, security, and we can rely on our job and our, our abilities and all of those things. And we can build our lives around work and make work our God or a relationship. We say, well, I can't be happy until I meet this right person. And then I ask, we finally get to be together and I'm with this one person and I ask them to be God in my life. I take a good person and ask them to be God in my life. I ask them to be my sole source of security, satisfaction, and significance. I ask them to be God and they fail me because they're not God. And here's what happens when you do that. 
Whenever you take something that's not God and you make it God-like, you rely on it too much, you love it too much, you want it too much. When it fails you, you go into work and your boss says you're fired and all of a sudden everything that you built your life is gone or the person that you marry says, I don't love you anymore and they walk out the door and you say, what am I gonna do? My life is over. What you have just done is you've asked a person, you've asked a job, you've asked a hobby, you've asked something to be God in your life and it will fail you. Some people ask health. They want to live a healthy life. They eat healthy, they exercise, and then all of a sudden they go into the doctor's office and he says, I see something, we've got to look at it. And you go, no, wait, that can't be. Remember the story Jesus told about the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, well, you know what the law says. And he says, well, I followed it since I was a wee little lad. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Let me read it to you. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. I love this, how Mark says this. Jesus, by, by the way, Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus was saying to the man, will you trust me or will you trust your money? Jesus said to Nicodemus, will you trust me or will you trust your tradition? Jesus said to the woman at the well, will you trust men? that you're with, or will you trust me? Here's the third thing. We have a new position. You were condemned, but now you're alive, and he wants to make you into his masterpiece. So let's just review where we've been. What he said so far is you were born spiritually dead. You weren't moving towards God, you're moving away from God. Paul says that clearly in Romans chapter 1, that God has revealed himself, but people don't want him in their lives. They want to be their own gods. They want to be the, the captain of their own soul. So they choose to walk away from God. But he says you're spiritually dead. But God, in his great love and mercy, made you alive. He gave you life. Well, how does he give us life? How does he give us life? Well, it always begins with God. Notice this, it says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead. It is God who comes into your life and gives you life. He is the only one that can give you life. You can't manufacture it. You don't get it by going to church. You don't get it by following rules. So where does faith come in? Some of you may be here, and maybe you've heard this, or maybe you believe this. Maybe you're watching, and this is something that you struggle with. You say, I don't have enough faith. I think my problem is I don't have enough faith. And what we tend to do, what people tend to do, is they equate having faith in something and having assurance in something. They, they, they want to say it's the same thing. In other words, they'll say things like, I don't have as much faith as you do. And what they mean by that is, I 
have faith, but I still, it's not complete. I still have questions. I still have issues. It's not, I'm not fully assured. And until I'm fully assured, I guess I don't have faith. And I want to tell you that faith and full assurance are two different things. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that we're out, we're in Colorado, we're in Denver, and we're, we're climbing up a mountain pass, and we're walking up this mountain pass, and as we get higher, we get in, you know, into the higher elevation, the trail gets more gnarly, it gets more narrow, and all of a sudden, you're taking a drink, and you, you don't look, and your, your foot hits a rock wrong, and off the cliff you go. You have just a moment. You, it's, a, it's a millisecond. You just have, uh, just, you're falling. You're panicking. You're just, ah, you know, it's one of those. And as you're falling, you see a branch, and you reach out, and you grab that branch. How much faith did you need to grab that branch? None. Right? You didn't have to have any faith. See, the, the thing that you have to understand about faith is, faith is just reaching out and saying, help. It, faith isn't about having the full assurance. Faith is where you place it. The significance of faith is where are you placing it? So the issue is, will that branch hold you, right? That's the bottom line. You've exercised all of your faith, if you had any, any left faith, you, it was all in that branch, right? The question is, will the branch hold? So my question to you today, whether you're watching or whether you're here, where are you placing your trust? Before I read this passage in Ephesians that I pointed out, I was placing my trust in me. And I realized that I was placing my trust in a bad branch that would break and fail. And I realized there was only one branch that I should grab onto, and it was Jesus. It's kind of like, remember the two criminals that were on either side of Jesus? And one of them says to Jesus, he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? Now, what's he doing right there? He's about ready to die. He's going off the cliff. And he grabs onto Jesus by faith, and he says, help. What does Jesus say to him? Today you're with me and you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because Jesus is secure. So it's not how much faith you have, it's where you place it. All right. So where are you placing your faith today? Let's talk about one last thing. Who, and this is kind of raging in our culture now, who defines who you are? People say, well, you define who you are. You can be whoever you want to be. You, you determine who you are. And um, certainly, I understand where that comes from because as parents, we want to encourage our kids. As uh, friends, neighbors, we want to encourage kids to be all that they can be and to encourage them because you know what? They get a lot of negative things and say, you'll never amount to anything. You're nothing. You're, you're you know, so they get a lot of negative speak. So it's good, it's important that we encourage them and we want them to thrive and we want them to not just survive, but just go, go for it, right? We want that. But my question is this. What if there's a creator who before the, before the, the world was made had a plan for your life? The one who created the stars and the moon and the planets and the galaxies 
the one who created the earth, the one who created you in his image, the one who sent his son as a savior, what if he has a plan for your life? And it's a good one. In fact, it's not just a good one, it's a great one. It's an incredible one, it's the best one. And as you allow him, as you follow his plan and you, uh, you know, allow him to guide you and direct you along the lines of his plan, you become a masterpiece. What if that's true? Well, that's kind of what Paul's saying. That's exactly what Paul's saying in verse 10. That's, it, it, but, but here's the thing. I want to tell you something. Everyone in this room and everyone watching, God has designed you to be a masterpiece. We are created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. But there's a problem. We have all been marred. We have all been messed up by sin. It has. It's messed us up. So there's these new protests going on. Maybe you've seen it. People are gluing themselves to things in protests. Crazy glue their hands to the floor. Or I was watching the tour and they were sitting across the road blocking the tour. Or now they're going into, well, a uh, little over a week ago, someone went into the Louvre and, in Paris and they dumped uh, paint or something on the Mona Lisa. Um, so people are finding ways to deface things, right? And that's their new way of protesting. And Paul is basically saying that when we come to Christ, we receive his Holy Spirit, we get new life, and the Spirit of God begins this work, and God begins a work in our lives. And he begins to transform us from the inside out. He begins to restore us. Um, but here's the thing. We try to sometimes do the, our own restoration. So I want to show you a couple of restorations of old art, uh, famous art pictures. So here's one, pretty good, right? You can see the before and after and, and how a master can do it. Here's another one. Yep, there it is. Good, right? Here's another one. See, isn't that incredible? Incredible. Uh, so I was thinking to myself, I think I can do this. So I found an old painting, and I decided I would try to restore it. So here's what I did. That's absolutely not true. But it is absolutely true that somebody tried to do that restoration. Here's the thing. The world has seen those type of restorations, and they go, that's crap. That's awful. That's Christ? That's a Christian? That's the church? Uh, I'm not interested. When we try to fix ourselves, when we try to, to um, restore ourselves, we often do it through legalism. We, we, we say one thing and do another thing. We try to put on a good face. We try to uh, mask certain things, but people see through it. And they go, you're a hypocrite. We're a bad representation. So the question is, will you let him work on you? 
I don't know if it's true, but Michelangelo was asked when he was working on the David statue, um, how do you go about taking a slab and and turning it into a beautiful statue? And he said um, something along these lines. He said, all I did was chip away everything that didn't look like David. So maybe God is working in your life today and he wants to chip things off. Maybe there's a couple parts that he wants to knock off, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to, it's not something you want. In fact, you already know what it is. He said, do this, do this, do this, and you said, no, no, no. Or he said, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, and you say, no, no, no. What is it that God wants to do in your life? What is the next step that he wants you to take? And you know what it is, but you've been putting God off. And and, and God says, we have to chisel this off if you're going to become the masterpiece that I designed you to be. We've got to stop trying to do our own restorations because they look awful. And we've got to say, God, you made me alive for a purpose to make me into what you want me to be. And if you are the same person you were a year ago, something's wrong. If you, you should be less irritable, you should be less anxious, you should be less bitter. And if you don't see those things happening, I can list a whole bunch more. If you don't see those things happening, something's wrong. Jesus in John 15 calls that pruning. He says, sometimes the vine dresser will come and he'll prune some vines and it hurts and it's painful and it's difficult. But if you want to become the vine or the masterpiece that God designed, you have to allow the creator to come in and make you into his masterpiece. So what is the next step you need to take? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for your word and the encouragement. Help us to understand that we were in big trouble. We were dead in sin, not just sick. We were dead. But God, because he was rich in mercy, made us alive through Jesus Christ. And thank you, Father, that it's not how much faith we have. It's where we place it. Help us to place it in Christ and not in ourselves. Father, thank you that you are working in us to be, make us into the masterpiece you desire us to be. Help us to get out of the way and allow you to wield your hammer or to prune your vine so that we can become all that you designed us to be. Help us to stop desi- deciding what we should be and become what you've designed us to be. Help us to know what our next step is, Father. And then help us to obediently take that step today, tomorrow, and this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.